welcome to Longitude Soundbites, where we bring innovative insights from around the world directly to you. Hi, I'm Dominic Dudiap, Longitude Fellow and graduate student at Rice University studying electrical and computer engineering. We are exploring roles, projects, and approaches of individuals to experimentation and contemplation in scientific and creative fields. For this episode, I had the opportunity to speak with Peter Denton. Peter Denton is an associate physicist at Brookhaven National Laboratory, where I interned as an undergraduate. He studies neutrinos. Neutrinos are among the most abundant particles that have mass in the universe. These particles almost never interact with other matter, which makes them difficult to detect. Trillions of neutrinos from the sun stream through our body every second, but we can't feel them. Join me as I engage in conversation with Peter Denton about the current works toward the deep underground neutrino experiment. Enjoy listening. After I, I did my bachelor's in uh, math and physics at Rice, I did a PhD at Vanderbilt in uh, physics, focusing on uh, theoretical particle physics. That just means looking at particles, the kind of the smallest things, and then in looking at them in the most extreme environments to see how you know, our understanding of them breaks. If it, is it correct? Is it not correct? But I, so I did that uh, at Vanderbilt in Nashville. So right now I, I work at Brookhaven Lab, which is on Long Island, near, near-ish to New York City. There's a, a number of programs for undergraduates and graduate students and actually high school students as well um, to come to Brookhaven Lab. And I think some of the other labs do this as well. We bring in just a huge number of students each year at different levels to engage with scientists, but also with like the hardware, like the state of the art, you know, whatever uh, machine to run little, you know, experiments and they give them little projects. And, you know, so sometimes it is actually contributing to research, but sometimes it's just getting a feel for what it is because a lot of people don't understand, I find really kind of the idea of what research is. And it sounds like you've already gotten this experience a little bit. People kind of understand like what a business is or like what a doctor or a lawyer or things like that. What do they do? Like there's TV shows about them. Um, so we all kind of have some vague idea of what these things are like. But research is, is different from those things. You know, and, and, and this is, it's, it's very hard to, to understand that without experiencing it. And so even if it's in kind of a, a very simple, con, you know, confined, you draw a box around some little problem and you say, okay, go work on this problem. Um, it still provides the experience and that it's, it's different from doing your, your math and physics and engineering homework in school, whether in master's program or in, in undergrad or even in high school, those homework problems, you know, it's, it's a well-defined problem. There's a beginning, there's an end. The answer is probably in the last chapter of your textbook, you know, but in research, there's no guarantee there is an answer. And I just come up with an interesting question. How do I do that? You know, I don't know. It requires some level of creativity. In fact, I would say that being successful in research is, is largely creative effort. It's very similar to the arts. And then you have to generate a new solution out of, out of the ether, so to speak, see if this works. And obviously you have to have the technical skills in terms of math or hardware or whatever to execute it and, and see if it works. But it's very open-ended. I mean, it's problems that, you know, the, the, the first time they're done, it'll take a year, but then maybe maybe it'll be the homework problem. You, you know, you do it in a day because the procedure and the, the things are well-defined. And so once you understand there is a solution and that it is achievable, then that, you know, that makes things much simpler. But that's why I think these uh, uh, research programs for students 
are so essential, even if a person doesn't become a research scientist, just to have an understanding of what that looks like. I certainly believe that it also provides them the benefit of getting first-hand experience. So they can certainly hit the ground running after graduation. They essentially have a direction, whether research or industry. Exactly. Can you tell me a bit about the brief experience at Dune and how do you describe your experience at Fermilab? The U.S. is building a particle physics experiment. It's the biggest particle physics experiment in the U.S. called Dune. There's also other names like LBNF, which are associated with it. But we can just basically call the whole thing Dune, like the movie and novel, but uh, stands for the Deep Underground Neutrino Experiment, not uh, you know a desert planet in space. It, it consists of a number of separate components that are each of which by themselves would be considered their own experiment in a typical thing. Um, the primary part is at Fermilab, which is a national lab uh, outside of Chicago, um, where they have a, a big accelerator complex. So they're used to accelerating particles to very high what we call energies to, to get a lot of oomph so they can do a lot of cool stuff. And they, they have experience with that, and they're going to have to redesign that uh, in a number of ways. And then they're also building separately a, a very big detector. Um, but typically, the detectors are like in the same place as the accelerators. But for these kinds of experiments, these kinds of neutrino oscillation experiments, you often put the detector like several states away. So this detector will be in South Dakota in a, in a former gold mine. So they dug very deep. They dug out a lot of gold, and then the gold extraction kind of stopped. And of course, they're looking at that relative to the price of gold. And then they said, all right, we're done with the mine. And basically, as soon as that happens, physicists jump right in and move in. And there have been experiments, smaller experiments there for years looking for different things because being underground is advantageous for a number of reasons. But now that they're fully out, they're prepared to start building huge underground caverns and stick giant detectors in there. And the underground caverns are actually mostly done. I think they're about 90% excavated. I think the target completion date is late January. So it's these two separate parts compose what is Dune. Now, my role in it is, uh, I would say, somewhat peripheral. I'm a, I'm a theorist, so I, I'm not building things. I, I'm not very good at building things. But I try to think about things in different ways to put things together in uh, ways that people haven't thought of before. And, and so a lot of that is related to Dune, although some of it is related to other experiments and other physics topics. What exactly are neutrinos? The neutrino is neutral, so it's electrically neutral, which means it doesn't interact uh, in the same way that electrons interact. Right? Electrons interact with everything. And then that's why we can do chemistry, we can build semiconductors, and we can manipulate electrons super well and do all kinds of cool stuff with them. Neutrinos, not so much. The neutrino, even though it's electrically neutral, doesn't interact very much. Right? In physics, that's what we think about is how does stuff interact and exactly how does that happen? How likely is it? And like, what kind of angles and what kind of energies do they come in with and go out with? And what is the probability for this to happen or for that to happen and whatever? We calculate all this stuff. Now, there's two other particles I mentioned, like an electron, called a muon and a tau. I like to think of them as like the fatter cousins. Right? Electrons like the skinny little kid or whatever. And then I think about 200 times heavier is the muon. And then another factor of, I think, about 20 times heavier is the tau. But at the fundamental level, they're all kind of the same thing. But it turns out that because their masses are different, they act a little bit differently. So heavier particles can decay into lighter particles if that's allowed by certain rules. Um, so the muon and the tau, they decay fairly readily. Um, so they're not stable. So they're not just hanging around. Electrons, obviously, are just hanging around because there's nothing lighter for them to decay to. They're pretty light on the scheme of things. So when a neutrino interacts, 
it will produce either an electron, a muon, or a tau. And since they look differently, we can measure them in a detector. We build detectors that are designed to say, oh, an electron interacts this way, a muon, because it's heavier, it does something different, and a tau also does something different. So there are multiple sources from mm. which we can detect them. How much information can our detectors at Dune actually provide you in the terms of differentiating whether they are coming from Earth? resources yeah. or yeah. stars and supernovae yeah yeah good so yeah exactly so uh, uh there, there's a lot of sources of neutrinos i mentioned nuclear reactors that's how neutrinos were discovered they're also produced in the atmosphere there's a that's kind of background radiation that's raining down on us it's not it's not great for us but we get it all the time this is just uh, part of life and um, they're also produced in the sun uh, quite abundantly occasionally stars uh, run out of fuel and they explode and it turns out that produces a you know bucket load of neutrinos and how do you know, you know, when you detect something, first you have to know it's a neutrino and not another particle, right? That's that's uh, that's the first problem. And even once you know that, you say, well, where is it coming from? So there, there's a bunch of different techniques. And, you know, when you design your experiments, which you design with these things in mind, uh, Dune's primary goal is actually detecting human-made neutrinos. So from a, a controlled source. So they what they do is they, they smash, you know, particles together at Fermilab near Chicago, and this produces... You know, a bunch of a bunch of particles, which eventually produces neutrinos. So that's basically anything you produce is going to produce neutrinos. So this is how the the source at Fermilab works. Um, is it's just producing a sort of we call it a beam of neutrinos. It's kind of broad, but um, it's most of the neutrinos go in the forward direction. You know, and along along some axis, which is hopefully going to be pointed correctly at South Dakota. And and the thing about this beam is that well, okay, so in your detector you have some three D sort of spatial reconstruction, and you can kind of tell. Because you see all the the secondary particles going in one direction, so they're all going up or down or left or right or whatever. Well, you know where Fermilab is, so they should be going in a way that corresponds to coming from that direction. They should be going west-ish. And that if all the secondary particles are going west-ish, you know that the neutrino that you just detected came from Fermilab. Obviously, you have to get the direction exactly right. In addition, the, the beam is pulsed. So it shoots neutrinos for a, sh- a short period of time, and there's an empty spot. You also have the timing information. So you know how far away it is, how long it takes for them to get there. You count for that. And you say, ah, it has to come in this small time window here and not in this big time window here. There, there's some uh, uh, duty factor of where basically if they, they come in this big chunk of time, then you know that it's not a neutrino f- from Fermilab. Uh, and so you combine this information, and then you do some statistical things, and you say, well, we're 99% sure that this is a neutrino from Fermilab. But there's other things as well. So if it comes from a supernova, like you mentioned, those neutrinos tend to be lower energy than those from Dune, aside from, from Fermilab. So you have a different detection strategy in the first place, just for how they look in the detector. But also, uh, Dune will see a lot of neutrinos, hundreds to thousands in a time span of like two seconds. Well, normally the rate is like, you know, I don't know, one a day or something like that from Fermilab. It's, it's very rare. Uh, it's not very often. So if you're seeing, you know, a couple a day or whatever the rate is, you know, and you're, you're, you're checking your watch and you're like, oh, there's another one going to come today or not. I don't know. But then you all of a sudden see in like two seconds, you see like 500 neutrinos and they're not coming from the direction of formula. They're coming from some random direction, but they're lower energy, but they're all coming from kind of the same direction. Then you think, ah, that, that must be a transient burst event. doesn't necessarily immediately mean it's a supernova, but you can combine this with other information and, and put it together. And if that happens, there's actually a number of neutrino detectors around the world that will see it. Uh, they'll send out an alert. You can actually sign up for this online. And I recommend anybody does this. Uh, it's called SNEWS, S-N-E-W-S. 
the Supernova early warning system. And you can just sign your type in your email address. They never sent an alert. The, the last supernova nearby I've seen was in 1987. There's not been one since then. We're waiting patiently. It's been 35 years. We think we're due, but you know that's not how these things work. But then the, the point is that we'll get into neutrino information from a supernova before we get the information via visible light. Um, and that's because outside the supernova, there's a bunch of dust. And so the, the neutrinos, because they don't interact very much, remember I said they're little, they just truck right through it. They just come through it at very near the speed of light. But the visible stuff, it kind of bounces around for a while. So we, so the optical telescopes won't see it until potentially hours later. So there's this like really small sliver of time, and you need that neutrino information, and you get that. You then use triangulation. You then use pointing. You use a variety of different things and say, we're pretty sure there's a supernova you know, near-ish, nearby, in that direction, everyone with a telescope. And that means you, you know, at home with your telescope or binoculars or your eyeballs should go look in the direction that they say and see if you see suddenly a new star appear in the sky, because that's that's possible. I mean, that's happened before, but now we have the capability to know in advance. That's never happened before. Uh, that that would be just an amazing thing. Um, and Dune will, Dune will play a big part of that. For sure. I like to think of it as you snooze, you lose the opportunity ah, yeah. to observe a galactic yeah. core collapse. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Which is yeah, a yeah. precursor to a black hole and a white dwarf, so it's pretty important. Yeah, exactly. So supernova can form a black hole sometimes. We don't really know very well how often that happens. It can form a, a neutron star, which is it's like a really compact bunch of neutrons and stuff, basically, that's just super energetic and doing a bunch of crazy stuff. Uh, and and seeing these things form in some sense would be amazing. I mean, uh, there's so much so much to know that, we, that we'd love to be able to get at, but you can never do these kinds of things at the Earth. So we have to use, you know, uh, astrophysical environments to do this. And neutrinos play a huge role, provided that you can detect them. And they're a pain to detect, but we're we're building bigger and more sophisticated detectors all the time. What are some upcoming milestones or experiments that you're most looking forward to? Yeah, that, that's a great question. There's a couple of things coming up. There's currently experiments like Dune. So Dune will be expected to turn on in the next, let's say, five-ish years. But there's experiments that are doing a similar thing right now. One at Fermilab, it's called Nova. And there's another one in Japan called T-Decay. And, and they're, they're doing the same thing, but with less precise detectors and less powerful beams. And so they're they're putting out results. You know, they, they haven't put out results in a couple of years so I think they're hopefully do some crossing my fingers. They're going to put out something soon and they're measuring stuff, you know, not nearly as well as Dune will, but we're still getting information and it may provide indications for what kinds of things to expect that Dune. You know, oh, maybe, maybe the numbers are a little bit, you know, maybe the parameters are a little bit more this way. So, you know, we, we should have that in mind, uh, Dune, you know, measuring the things we want to measure Dune will be a little bit easier or a little bit harder. So I'm hoping that with the next data release from these current, what are called long baseline neutrino oscillation experiments, that they will start to migrate towards each other. Do they migrate more towards the one or the other one? You know, how does it work? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, this is, it's, it's research, right? We, we don't know how it goes. could go in either way. But I think that's something that I've been anticipating for, for some time. And I'm very much hoping that they will come out with something soon. All right. So what advice would you give to a young scientist aspiring to pursue a career in practical physics? Obviously, you got to do well in your classes. You got to learn differential equations, linear algebra, and so on. Uh, maybe more math, depending on what areas you're interested in. You have to learn programming. There's very few physicists who have successful careers without pretty good programming abilities. Um, I'm not saying you have to be like a computer scientist and writing your own compilers or whatever, but you know, high performance computing using supercomputers, this is a standard tool of physics today. So you got to learn that stuff. 
and also getting involved in research, right? Doing summer research things as and there's a number of opportunities there. But I would say that the some of the biggest problems that young scientists have where things start to go awry is in, and I would say in two kind of main areas. One is in uh, having an awareness of what a career in research looks like. It doesn't look like a career in business or in you know other professional careers like law or medicine or whatever. It's, it's a very different kind of career trajectory. And it's a little bit different in every field. But you know, just very briefly, kind of a standard career trajectory is you get a bachelor's. Of course, you get a you go to graduate school, you get a master's and a PhD that may be together or separate. Then you do postdocs. This typically involves moving, quite possibly moving around the world. I'm American, but I did my postdoc in Denmark because that's where I got a postdoc. You do one, two, three, some number of those. These are each a couple of years. Um, and then you get a hopefully a you know permanent tenure track job. So there's some kind of trajectory, there's some kind of you know, steps that you have to accomplish. It also looks a little bit differently in different countries, uh, in Europe and, and in different places, it follows a different trajectory. That's one thing. Um, the other thing is what are often called like soft skills, networking, giving talks, writing. And you think, oh, I'm getting into physics because it doesn't involve people. And sometimes that's very nice, uh, but that's of course not true. In order to be successful, you have to network. You know, you're just the same as your friends going into finance or uh, engineering or whatever. You got to go out to, and meet people and make a good impression and make sure they remember you. You also have to give talks. This is a big part of the job. You stand in front of a room of 30 people or 100 people or 300 people and uh, tell them about your research. And they're going to ask tricky questions and you got to be able to answer it on the spot. And people who do this well, leave a good impression on the audience. And maybe one of them, when it comes time to hire somebody, decides to hire you. That definitely happens. Also writing. And we write a lot. People who can write good papers that are easy to read. It, it makes a big difference. And people remember those people uh, much better than, you know, if you struggle with it a little bit. So, you know, I, I spent time in, in literature classes in school because I liked it, but I also got a lot of practice writing and it's definitely paid off a lot for me. Don't think you can get by just taking only math and physics and be fine. Uh, it is necessary, I would say, to have, have a successful career in particle physics to be able to write well, to, to stand up and speak in front of people and to, to network well. We hope you enjoyed our episode. What stood out for me from this conversation was how much information neutrinos provide about our universe. Supernovae early warning system, the snooze for short, can inform us on the life and health of the core of our sun before its light makes its way to us. The snooze can even inform us of supernovae and the transition to black holes or neutron stars. It can even lead to the examining of the essence of dark matter and dark energy for scientists. To view the episode transcript, please visit longitude.site. If you're a college student interested in leading a conversation like this, visit our website longitude.site to submit an interest form or to write to us at podcast at longitude.site. Join us next time for more unique insights on longitude sound bites.